Thank you, praise team. Good morning. Welcome to Grace Baptist Church, Farmer Ground. So glad to be with you this morning. I have uh, been out of the pulpit for three weeks. I think that's the longest I've been out of the pulpit. I can't remember when. So it's been a long time since I've missed three consecutive Sundays. Uh, I, uh, I wanted to thank you all for the prayers, texts, the food, uh, all the help you've given. Uh, over these weeks as we have continued to be coming out of quarantine. We've got two that will finish quarantine up on Monday. Didn't actually show symptoms, but we're still keeping them away, and that's, of course, Asher and Adeline. Uh, but the rest of us are clear. Uh, I guess I'm probably one of the safest people you can be around at this point since I have had it and I have the antibodies, so you can probably hug me. Uh, I'll take this off in the first service there. I try to be a little more cautious. We have a, a few more uh, in a more vulnerable group. So if you want to greet me, feel fine, whatever you're comfortable with this morning as we exit here in a bit. Um, also, one more thing of housekeeping before we, we move on. We had the church fog this week for COVID-19, and this is also flu season. kills everything. And at the conclusion of the service today, uh, we, we've got a fog machine on uh, loan. It's actually technically called hydrostatic. I'm not a cleaning person. I missed that day in theology class, but it, it charges the particles and it will be the equivalent of wiping down the whole room, everywhere, everything in it, and uh, getting that safe for the lock-in tonight. Woohoo! For the lock-in tonight. Woo! Uh, there it is. I was wondering where that was. All right, so good deal. Okay, if you're a uh, first time with us or first time in a long time, uh, we try to go through the Word of God. We believe here at Grace Baptist Church the Word of God is uh, precedent in all things. It's the most important thing that we do. And so we are working right now through the Gospel of Luke. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them and turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Uh, if you don't have your Bible, then it'll be on my, the screen to my right, to my left. And uh, it's been a while since we have been, uh, since I've been up here preaching. Danny has been helping and others have been helping. And uh, we are uh, now looking at the ministry of John the Baptist. And might I say, before we get into this, this is one of my favorite preachers of all time. And uh, I'll get into that in just a minute about who he is and and where he is, and so today I'm, I've kind of laid out this sermon. We're going to look at this in terms of kind of asking questions of the text. You know, who was he? What's his message? Where is he, and why? You know, we're going to look at it kind of that way. If you're a note taker, you want to kind of lay those out, and then we're going to put some takeaways with each one of those. And so, uh, with that in mind, uh, let's turn to the Word of God together. See what it has to say for us this morning. Uh, here, here is the word of God. John cha or Luke chapter 3. I don't know how many times this morning I said John in the first service. So anyway, if I say John, just know I mean Luke here. And we're talking about John the Baptist. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judah, and Herod being tetriarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetriarch of the region of Ikritha and uh, Traecatus and Lyasaius, uh, tetriarch of Abilene, during the high priest of Ananias and, Cep and uh, Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. All right, let me kind of pause here for just a minute and say a few things about just the intro. This is a very specific introduction. And in this very specific introduction, what we are seeing happening here is... Luke is making very clear these are real historic events that happen. These are historic events that 
uh, have a particular date. In this case, you know, all these people that are listed here are real people that lived and really held these different positions. Now, let me say a couple things about these individuals. Uh, none of them did a stellar job. This was actually a pretty dark time politically for the nation of Israel and for the Roman Empire. The uh, Caesar that is mentioned here is not exactly known for being one of benevolence. He was a military general who became Caesar who never really wanted to be a king, right? He's a king who became king and never really wanted it. In addition to that, you see a, a, another issue. There is this, I don't know why it says tetrarch. That means to divide into fours. You see these men that are ruling the area. Uh, there's three that are mentioned, but it should be four. I guess the father figure is supposed to be the fourth one. He divided it up upon his passing. Herod uh, is mentioned here. We know he's responsible for the death of many young children under his time. And then, of course, we see Pontius Pilate that is mentioned here. He's a replacement for some of the leaders that they had at the time, and he struggles to even know what truth is. He's the one who is most famous for standing with Jesus and saying what even is truth. So none of these leaders that are mentioned here are stellar leaders. They're not great leaders. They're not really notable in history. Actually, it marks a, a, a time of darkness at this level. Uh, it would be, and, and this, in addition to that, it's, it's marking specificity. So, for example, if we were to do this today, something like what Luke is doing, we'd say in the fourth year of President John Donald J. Trump's presidency, when Bill Lee was governor of Tennessee, and when Kurt Alexander was mayor of Elizabeth, and Annie Stanley pastored a megachurch in Atlanta, and Robert Morris pastored a megachurch in Southland, Texas, the word of the Lord came down 321 into Pogi, and up a dirty, dusty road landed on a deer stand, right? That, that's what he's saying here, right? Because let's be honest, if you live in Carter County, nobody just goes by Pogi, right? I mean, you've got to have a reason to go to Pogi, right? That is like the wilderness of the wilderness from our point of view. And so in this particular passage here, this is what the author is doing here. He is setting us up and pointing out where John the Baptist is, right? And when he is, and then he's going to be more clear about where he is, right? Uh, verse 3, and he went into the, all the region around the Jordan. Now this is a little bit different than the account of John the Baptist that's recorded in Matthew. Uh, Matthew records some details that Luke doesn't. And then one of these things that Luke says, apparently he moves around in the wilderness here, in this area. This is a, and I'm going to talk more about this in a minute, but this is a wilderness basin area. It's desert-like, and uh, it's, it's not on the way, okay? And he went into all the region. So he's moving around. He's in all this region here in, Jude, in Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the word of the prophet Isaiah the prophet, the voice of the Lord crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough place shall be leveled down. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came, one to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Right, this is what I like about John the Baptist, right? You know, it's a... Uh, he is not, you know, if you want sugarcoating, don't go to John the Baptist, right? He is not a sugarcoat guy. He, he is calling people out. Uh, look what he says here. Can you imagine this, doing this today here in, in Elizabethan, like, you know, hey, I got a great evangelism model because so, they're so popular in the church. Like, this is a new COVID-19 model. Go downtown, get people within six feet, get about three or four of them together and say, 
Guys, listen. The word of God came to me when I was in a deer stand in Pokey. Here's what I have to say to you. Repent, you brood of vipers. You're a bunch of snakes, right? This is the message that he had. It's not soft pedal. It's not pulled back. It's rather in your face, and it feels very offensive, right? You brood of vipers, who wanted, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds answered him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than, uh, than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked to him, uh, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone who threatens or by false accusation and be content with your wages. This this ends the reading of God's holy, errant, and and, uh, inspired word. I pray he writes this truth on all of our hearts. So first question here that I want to ask of this text, now that we've kind of looked through it, had a little commentary on it. What is John's message? What is his message? We had to boil this message down. What is it? Well, first and foremost, the message of John is one of baptism, of an outward testimony. It's a baptism, an outward testimony. Now, let me say a few things about baptism before I get too far. Baptism would not have been something that was unknown in the Jewish mind. In the temple in Jerusalem, they would have these, uh, they had a special Hebrew word to describe them. They were deep pools. Many of the priests that were Levites would actually enter into the pool. You know, they'd be alone for this. Nobody would be around. They would unclothe themselves, dip themselves in the pool, come out, put on an all-white garment, and then go into the next level of holiness to begin their uh, task as priests. And uh, that was kind of how the Levites did that. So they would be baptized. Now, this word in Greek is baptizo, okay? Doesn't that sound a lot like baptize? Because here's what they did when they translated the Bible into English years ago. They, they just took the word, that's called a transliteration, what a word says in Greek, and then they just brought it over and made a new word in English. And so the word they made was baptize. Okay? The word actually means in Greek to immerse, to go completely underwater. So, for example, um, if you're washing dishes and you have a sink full of water, you baptizo the dishes whenever you take it completely under. When a ship sinks at war, the historians in Greek would record, the ships would baptizo, they would be completely immersed and under the water. So that's really what it means. It just means to be immersed. There was a unique group that lived near this area where uh, John the Baptist is preaching. The Essenes, in the tombs of uh, Qumran there, they thought they were the only people going to heaven. You ever met people like that? Thought they were the only ones. Just this little sect of people right here out in the desert withdrew from society in order to be part of this group, you had to go through a ritualistic baptism, and then they would give you new clothing. 
that you would put on afterwards and then you could be part of that group. Sometimes they would have to rebaptize themselves if they had to struggle and they would get baptized again. So it was something that was in the culture and was known to those that were going out to hear John, John preach. But he's talking about something a little different than ritualistic baptism or joining a club. Let's look at this a little closer. I think what's driving this here is actually an issue of repentance. It is repentance. So there's the outward, the message that he's saying, be, be baptized. But there is the baptism is being driven by this other message of be repent. Basically, this word just means have a change of mind about your sin. Have a complete change of mind about your sin. In other words, or to say it another way, the message is the outward act of baptism and or coupled with or preceding the inward transformation of repentance. Okay? And why does that happen? For the forgiveness of sins. It marks a heavenly transaction that has happened. What is the takeaway that we're to have with the messenger? John is telling us what? Repent and be baptized. You know, turn to the Lord. Be in agreement with God about your sin and the offense that it is to Him. And he says here that, that he tells the people they are to be baptized as a response to that transformation that's taking place internally. Is that different from the message of the church today? Not really, is it? Isn't this what we're still calling people to do? This is what our takeaway here is from this message. I must repent and what? Be baptized. Now, let me make it clear. I am not teaching you today that baptism is essential to complete your salvation. I don't believe John was preaching that either. But I will say this. The New Testament, it is a foreign concept that there would be anyone who would be saved and repent who would refuse baptism. That is a creature that the New Testament does not even talk about. That is not a category uh, that is there. It is the first act of obedience that we do after we receive uh, Christ as our Lord and Savior. It doesn't complete it. Uh, it only shows what has happened inwardly. Now the next thing here. Where is John the Baptist? This is important. He's in the wilderness, right? He's in the first century equivalent of pogi, right? He's out in the sticks, so to speak. He, he is in a place of isolation. He is in a place of inconvenience, right? Uh, there's no quick way. To, I, I don't know if you know this or not. There's not really a quick way to zoom up to pogi and zoom back. I mean, that's going to be, what, an hour drive, depending on what part you're going to, uh, you know, down and back. Similar thing here. People are going to have to go out to find him. Um, I, I've oftentimes wondered here what you think of when you think of John the Baptist. You know, when I was in Louisville, Kentucky, studying at Southern, I went and saw this Easter pageant people went on and on about. There's this church in Louisville called Southeast Christian. Some of you may have heard about it. It's like they boast, they used to boast about 20,000 attenders on a weekly basis. Uh, I don't know if those numbers are still true, but they would put on this huge Easter pageant every year. It's probably spent thousands upon thousands of dollars. I mean, people from all over the state, from Kentucky and Indiana, both would come and see this uh, Easter pageant. Had to have cops come and control the traffic. Anyway, so you're in this huge auditorium, thousands upon thousands of people seated, and all the lights go dark. And I wonder what you think of when you think of John the Baptist. This is what I think of. 
And all of a sudden, it's pitch black dark. There's this one spotlight on this big, burly man. I mean, he's like bigger than me, taller than me, hairier than me, crazy beard, camel hair thing on, and it just, repent! You know, like it's the first thing he just screams at the top of his lungs. And, uh, you know, I always think about that in my mind. You know, you, you think about con compare and contrast, right? What is John doing here? John's ministry is what? He is the last of the prophets, right? The way that we see this in chapter 3, how the word of the Lord comes to him, it's just like how it came to Jeremiah. Uh, you know, just a minute ago, Michael mentioned one of the Old Testament prophets. Who was it you mentioned a minute ago, Michael? Isaiah? Yeah, who? Hosea, sorry, Hosea. The word of the Lord come to Hosea, comes to Isaiah. Here, this passage actually directly quotes Isaiah, another famous Old Testament prophet. But it's interesting here where he is. He sounds a lot like Jeremiah. He's, he's very similar to the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, right? In the, in the Old Testament, the priests were supposed to dress a certain way, right? Have you all ever seen the pictures? The priests had this nice white tunic. They had this, like, plate on their chest of the 12 tribes of Israel. They, were, they had these funny hats, you know, that they would wear, and they were just marked with their clothing as different, right? What's John the Baptist wearing? Is he, he is a Levite, right? He's from the, the tribe of priests. His dad was a Levite, so he has every right to be a Levite. You know, God leads him out, out of Jerusalem. So first of all, we got a Levite that's not practicing uh, in the temple. He's in a wilderness. Let me say something about that for just a minute. What we're seeing in this text, God leads John the Baptist into the wilderness before he calls them and before there's fruit that is bare. Some would say that this season of COVID-19 that we've been in since 2020, that really unimaginable in all the areas of the life that it has touched. You know, my mother-in-law was came down sick with it and was 21 days sedated in ICU in St. Louis, Missouri. We couldn't have imagined that in January of 2020 that, that would happen. And it has felt like this barren desert waste. But beloved, listen to me. God uses the wilderness. In the Old Testament, where did God send Moses before he used him to deliver God's people out of Israel or out of Egypt? Where did they send him first? He sent him where? To the wilderness. The wilderness is seen as a place of preparation and reflection. That's what the wilderness is in the Old Testament. When Israel comes out of Egypt, do they get to ransack and take over Salem and establish Jerusalem? Or do they have to go where? They've got to go to the what for a while? They've got to go to the wilderness for a while. They have to go to the wilderness. And it's in the wilderness that God does what? He gives them the Ten Commandments, doesn't he? on Mount Zion. He gives them the, the laws that will shape them as a distinct nation from any other nation that surrounds them. And where does he do that? He does that in the wilderness. Now listen to me. Some of you are in a wilderness of sorts right now. God has sent you there. He has sent you into a season of reflection and into a season of formation. Don't waste it. Don't be impatient with God. Don't jump to conclusions that you don't know. It's not till later that John gets to see why he sent to the wilderness and the fruit of his ministry. 
So reflect and praise God and be formed in that wilderness season right now. So this is a place of isolation. It's a place of inconvenience. Have you ever seen anything any more convenient than these dumb masks? Let's be honest. Right? It is inconvenient. Right? I hate them. I'll be honest. I hate them. But God can be teaching us lessons in the middle of that. So what are we supposed to take away from this? Where John, Well, I think the takeaway is I must obey God regardless of the convenience or the cost thought about that? You know, John could have had a pretty good life. You know, the Levites did well financially. He forsakes that. He wears clothes of camel skin, an unclean animal. Out in the wilderness, gives up that Levite salary to preach this message. Doing God's work, true obedience, is going to be inconvenient. It's going to be costly. Eventually, it will cost John his life. He will decrease, Christ will increase. What else do we see here? Oh, Isaiah 40. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked shall be straight, and the rough places shall become level. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. Our liberal, liberal scholars have sometimes said, trying, trying to be Christian, I like what one of my seminary professors said about liberal Christian scholars. He said they are just trying to save Christianity from the Bible. And uh, they will sometimes say this. They will say, well, you see, Jesus never distinctively said he was God in human form. Well, Luke definitely thinks Jesus is God in human form. The reason being here uh, is because, what's he say here? He is quoting Isaiah chapter 40. You can go home and read that later today. And when Isaiah makes this prophecy, speaking on God's behalf to Israel, right? That's the difference between a priest and a prophet. A prophet speaks on behalf of God. A priest speaks on behalf of the people. As this prophet proclaims, these are things that are to be done for the Lord. But John the Baptist and Luke... We're going to see this connected here in next week's sermon. They're connecting it to Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? That means that both Luke and John the Baptist are proving the divinity of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is God in human form because of the way they are applying Isaiah chapter 40 to Jesus. You see that this morning? Here they are saying Jesus Christ is the is God that we need to this past prophecy makes it clear and is being applied and there are future events right what does he say here he goes on and tells them the axe is laid to the root that there is a coming judgment that God is going to judge now in this particular case we know that Jesus is going to be the one who will bear the blunt of the axe blade to save those uh, who will trust him but there is an axe blade still, isn't there? Isn't there a coming judgment? Right? Really, John the Baptist's message is no different than the message of the church today. And in, a, and in a political atmosphere like we have, and in an age of confusion like we have, we must be abundantly clear what the church's message is. The church's message is repent of your sins, 
trust Jesus Christ, be baptized in faith in Him. That's our message, right? <laughs> that, that is what the message of John the Baptist was. That is the message that we continue to preach today. But it doesn't just stop there, right? It doesn't just end there. It goes on to say here, when the crowds came, and all these people, you know, you, you think about all these different people who come out here. It says there's three types of people here. There are tax collectors, there are soldiers that are here, and uh, there are um, another group of people here. Who was it here? Uh, said to them, verse 10, uh, those who have two tunics should give, give one away. What's the tunic? It's the undercovering, right? What's he telling them to do? If you repent, you are to do works in keeping with repentance. He goes on to tell the tax collectors, don't collect any more than you're authorized to do. He tells the soldiers, don't coerce people out of your brute strength to do things that they don't want to do, right? And be content with the wages that you are given. Do works that are in compliance and in agreement and live in a life of repentance. When I was a missionary, short-term missionary for a week in Romania, not very long, one thing that was amazing to me is, did you know in Romanian, they don't call Christians Christians? Did you know that? You know, what the, you know what they call Christians? They call them repenters. Because they repent, capital R, to Jesus Christ first and foremost, and then they adopt a lifestyle of repentance to others around them. In a similar fashion, this is the call of those that are in the church that are claiming to follow Christ. We should be quick to ask forgiveness from others, from our wives or our husbands, from our children, and children should ask from parents, from our fellow churchgoers. Repentance should be a radical thing that is totally countercultural to anything else the world sees. Let me see if I can make this more clear. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought, what is the impact? What is the gospel impact if people seeing true godly repentance in someone's life? What kind of a gospel witness is that for other people to see? I would argue it is a greater gospel impact than helping families out at Christmas time or just about any social ministry that you can do. I have an illustration to help us think through this. Um, this comes from way back in 2008. There was a, a shocking military um, uh, exercise that went wrong. So let me kind of share uh, some clips of this article with you and see if I can make this clear. It is December the 8th, 2008, at 11.11 11 in the morning. A young Marine pilot took off from his aircraft carrier, the USS Abraham Lincoln, on routine training flight. The carrier is maybe 90 miles southwest of San Diego. Lieutenant Dan uh, Numerer is flying an F-A-18 Hornet. Minutes into the flight, he notices low oil pressure in one of the two engines, and he shuts it down. The lights show low fuel for the other engine. He begins talking to air traffic control, and he is given options and suggestions on how to make an emergency landing. He can either go to the Naval Air Station on North Island and rotate uh, and route the that, that takes him over San Diego Bay, which is a highly populated area, or he can go through the Marine Air Station at Miramar, with which he is more familiar, but which will take him over heavily populated stretch of land. He goes for Miramar, okay? The second engine then flames out. 
Three miles after he, before he hits the runway, his electronics in the plane completely shut down and die. The lieutenant tries to aim his jet towards a canyon and ejects at what seems to all agree at the very last moment. The jet crashes nose down into University City, which is a neighborhood of San Diego, hitting two homes and damaging three. Four people, all members of a Korean immigrant family, are killed on impact. 36-year-old Youngim Lee, her, her daughter Grace, 15 months old, Rachel, 2 months old, and her 60-year-old mother, Sekim Kim. Lee's husband was at work that day, so he was not in the home. He's a grocer, and his name is Dun Young Yon, and he's at work. The day after he lost his entire family, he humbled himself and awed the San Diego by publicly forgiving the pilot. He says, I know he did everything he could, and he spoke of his faith. I know that God is taking care of my family. He went on to say his grace and generosity, uh, the author of this article says, the grace and generosity were staggering, but there was a growing local anger about the military action. Why was this uh, plane over land? The Marines launched an internal investigation on themselves. And here's where it gets good. A Major General, Ralph Alice. He, by the way, I want to say this about this guy. He was an elder at a sister Baptist church of ours in Capitol Hill, Capitol Hill Baptist Church. He was an elder there. He was a, almost had like a minister type status before he was transferred to San Diego for this investigation. After the Wednesday after the crash, here's what he concludes. Are you ready for this? The crash, Major General said, was clearly avoidable. It was the result of a chain of wrong decisions. Mechanics had known since July of a glitch in the jet's air fuel transfer system. The plane should have been removed from service and fixed and was not. The young pilot failed to read the safety checklist. He relied on guidance from Marines at Miramar who did not even know how complicated the knowledge of his situations was. He should have been ordered to land at North Island. He took an unusual approach to Miramar, taking a left loop instead of a shorter turn to the right, which ate up time and fuel. Twelve Marines were disciplined. Four senior officers, including the squadron commander, were removed from duty. Their military careers are essentially over, and the pilot is grounded while a board reviews his future. Now, what's the reaction of the world to the Marines doing this to themselves? In an age when people don't want to take responsibility, the Marines took responsibility for their actions. People were taken back. Reactions ranged from applause too, they're too hard on themselves. Right? Friends, let's think about this for a minute. I've watched a mess on Capitol Hill unfold this last year. And I'm yet to hear one politician take responsibility for anything. Every major institution in this country loves scapegoating, just like my eight-year-old son does. 
they stepped up and did that and people said my they are too hard on themselves they are marines though after how much more should we as Christians radically repent in such a way that people look at us in the church and say wow those Christians are so hard on themselves but after all they are Christians Lord help us to take this text today help us to apply it in such a way that we radically repent that we are marked and known for it not because we want to be noticed but because it is the right thing to do it is the call of your word as John stands in the desert in the wilderness in that arid below sea level place and calls people to repent and be baptized Lord the message is the same today God if there's anyone here today that has never done that they've never trusted you in such a way they have never truly repented God, too many times we would rather be right than be forgiven. Or we would rather not people know our sin than be forgiven. Or we would rather be vindicated than be forgiven. Lord, help us to let go of all those things and to run to the cross saying this crash could have been avoided. This crash and wreck that is my life could have been avoided. But God, it's all my mess. I bring it to you. Forgive me now, Father. have a song now in response to the gospel preached. You have heard the gospel plainly today, but where are you? Have you repented truly? Have you trusted Christ with all your sin? Or are you blame shifting still? Won't you trust him now as we sing? I'll be in the back to receive you if you'd like to talk or be prayed with.